How many people um, in the room here remember their, um, their first job? How many people remember their first job? All right, wonderful. Yes. Okay. So, I, and I, I, I had, I would, I would count it as a couple of first jobs. Not because I bounced around or anything like that. It's just that I'm going to classify all these as, as kind of first because of the, the life lessons and things that I learned from. But my very first job, the age of 14, I worked at a restaurant named Good and Plenty, which is out there in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It is a family style. Uh, country-eaten kind of place, and I was a dishwasher. And at the age of 14, you wash dishes. You're only allowed to work three hours at a time, and then you had to take a break because of the labor laws. It was four seventy-five an hour at the time. That was what minimum wage was. Yeah, it was great. I mean, others in here, like, I remember when it was less than minimum wage. But um, what was so, what I remember from that job was the smell of dish is and, like, fried food, and they have this thing called chow chow. Has anyone ever had chow chow before? It's like this like pickled bean and, and things. And so I mixed that all together, and that's what it smelled like in the kitchen. And as I came in, uh, my shift always was the shift where the, um, the bins, these big like yay thing bins that they stored fried chicken in had to be clean and scrubbed. And they had like, like 50 of them. At least if there was 10, there was 50. But I mean, it was stacked to the wall, and that was what my job was for the next three hours, was to scrub and do all that. And finally, I said to my, my parents, I said to my dad, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, I don't think this is great. And he said, well, you know, you got you know, it's important to have a job. I said, well, my, my friend, my friend, he has, his dad owns a tire kind of warehouse, tires as in like cars, and a garage. And I want to work with him because I had gotten a chance to go with him and, and play around at the shop, you know, when we were younger. I'm like, this would be great. Let's work there. And my dad said to me, listen, if you're going to do this, and this is, at this point I was 16, he said, if you're going to do this, you're going to work. You're not going to play around with your friend. I don't care what his dad lets him do. You are going to work. If you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean, always be doing that. Yes. It's this. And so very much instilling in me the value of hard work. If you ever worked in a tire warehouse, it's not great. <laughs> and what happens is, is they get these shipments in daily from big rig trucks of tires. And they come up on a conveyor belt and some guy launches them to you. And there's me at the end, 16, catching tires and like hoisting them up into stacks, dust, black. I was black all over when I left the place. And then there was times where they these big truck tires. You ever see big, big rig tires? Really big. Those things are heavy. The big rig tires are very, very heavy. You have to kind of like hoist them up. And one thing that my friend's dad had us do weekly was to clean out the junk trailer. And the junk trailer was where all tires go to die. And so as you went in there, I mean, there was, I mean, dirt and what looked like rust. I mean, I don't know how there's rust, they're, they're rubber, but I mean, it was just gross and you would pull tires out and the water would fall all over you. It was disgusting. After a while, I said to my dad, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so time went on and I turned 18 and we moved to Florida and my dad was working down there and he said, hey, as you're coming down, I've got a job for you if you're interested over the summer. I said, sure. And he said, it's in the fabrication shop. Do you know what a fabrication shop is? It's where they take metal and they weld it and do different things. And now I didn't weld. I was more on the grunt shifts of things. And I had to screw bolts and tighten them on these like little airflow units. I don't know what they're called. I was just supposed to, to turn screws. And, and that's what I did all day. 
and me and this other guy who were also both of us sons of higher-ups in the company, and he and I had a project every week. Do you know what the project every week was? Guess what? They had a junk trailer, and so we had to do <laughs> the junk trailer every week. Dad knew this is not what I wanted to do in life. Encouraged me to stick it out, and he taught me some lessons. Working in these jobs taught me lessons. One, you don't look down on a job. Any job, big or small, whatever it's calling you to do, is a job worth doing if you're doing it, and to do it well, and to remain, and to persevere, and to do your best. He taught me that what it means to, to labor well, to do good jobs. Sometimes the Lord gives us these lessons too. He has us labor and work at something, even though there's no real guarantee of successful results that we may not, at least that we won't witness, but continues to have us work in areas and serve in areas to teach us something, either about him or maybe about ourselves. And for our own formation, I'm using the word formation a lot today, and what I mean by that is how, how Jesus is forming and, and, and making us more into his image, more into his likeness. That's that's what is happening. When you profess a faith to, in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you, you now live a life of ongoing formation, of, of the Spirit continuing to teach you the truths of Jesus and you go through things and trials and tests throughout your life to help you become more and more like Jesus. Sometimes laboring in a situation where you don't know what's happening or what the outcome is going to be, but you know you don't like it, but you have to do it. Paul, as we're looking in the book of Acts, is in a situation like this, where he's being asked to labor well. Now, his trial that he is in right now, as, and we're towards the end of Acts, we're kind of going through this series. Paul has been in front of the Jerusalem court. He is, I'm losing track, in front of a Roman tribunal and now a tribune, and now, now he's in front of a Roman governor. These are not surprises. This is not out of the ordinary of what was going to happen to Paul. I think sometimes we can read this and we think, oh, Paul, Paul got a bum rap. But this is, this is definitely in the cards of what Paul is going to experience. One, we know Paul has received visitation from Jesus through his missionary journeys that, is, that said, you're going to go to Jerusalem, make a defense. You're going to go to Rome and make a defense. So we know that and Paul knows that. But Jesus himself gathered his 12 disciples at one point. And just before sending them out, he gives them some warnings of what it means to labor well and what it means to, to witness for him in these areas that he is sending them. If you look at Luke chapter 21, and you can look in your Bibles, just take it from the back of the pews or on your phone, Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 19, Jesus prepares them for what life following Christ and witnessing to his truth is going to be like. And therefore, not a surprise that Paul is coming under such, such trials. Verse 10, chapter 21, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences, and there will be tears and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Paul is now in front of a Roman governor. This will be your opportunity then to bear witness, to settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. Jesus tells them, don't try to figure this out before it happens. 
Don't try to rehearse. Don't try to put together all the right buzzwords, what to say. That's not going to work. What you need to do, he says, is basically trust in him. To lean into him and he will give us a mouth and wisdom which none of the adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 16. You will be delivered up by parents, by brothers, by relatives and friends, people who know you, who know you all too well. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. A little ray of sunshine, isn't it? Right? Just sign me up. Absolutely. I'm going to labor well in this. It's not a surprise to Paul. This is not a surprise that he is going through this trial. You remember last week I said what Jesus does, sometimes he doesn't get us out of circumstances. Most often what Jesus does is he pulls us through. And he's pulling us through circumstances and in things in life so that we can be formed, so that we become more like him. Our duty, our call is just to, to serve, to walk, to work, to labor well so that we can become more like Christ. And that is our main point for today. We learn these lessons, and there's, there's two lessons that come with this. We're, we're, we're learning this through Paul's defense. We're getting a, a master level course on how to personally have testimony and defend the truth of Jesus Christ and what Paul is doing. And what we learn from today as he goes in front of this Roman governor, Felix, and has an extended period of time with him, we learn that sometimes God calls us just to labor well, not knowing what the outcomes are going to be, to do that with patience and perseverance, and also to trust, to trust that even though we may not see the fruit of that labor, that God is doing all of this for our good so that we become more like Christ. You with me on that? So we're going to get into some theological stuff and dance around in Bible land for a little bit. We're going to come out of it praising God and everyone's going to leave here wanting to go out on the street corner and proclaim Jesus to everyone they meet. Good? Y'all ready? All right, let's learn. Let's learn what it is to labor well and to become more like Christ. Let's turn to Acts chapter 24. Here we are now, Paul in front of the Roman governor. It's a really short chapter. I'm going to read through it as fast as I can so you know and get the scene of what's happening here. At this point in time, the Jews have arrived. So Ananias, the chief priest, and all the other folks, and then they got this guy named Tertullus, who I'm just going to call Tert because that's how I just want to shorten it. But he's kind of like a lawyer of sorts. He's, he's very skilled in argumentation. So they bring a ringer. They bring somebody in to kind of, and I, you know what I think, I didn't say this at the first service, I think they know that they need someone good to go up against Paul. Because Paul is one of the best guys that is skilled in the art of rhetoric, is what it's called, argumentation, how to craft things together to make, to make a point get across. So they needed to come in, guns ablazing for what's going on. And why? Because they got nothing on Paul. Let's look. Ananias comes down with some elders and, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tert began to accuse him, saying, he talks to Felix, he says to Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and by since 
By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. It should put in here, please remove lips from Felix's you-know-what. Because this is exactly what he's just totally laying it on, right? But to detain you no further, Tert says, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, to be a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Then the Jews that were with them also joined in the charge. Yeah, you're here, you're here. All affirming all the things that were so. Then the governor nodded over to Paul and had Paul speak. Now, I am not that versed in Roman law, and things of that nature. But I have, in studying for this, read a little bit about, this is kind of a little out of the ordinary because due process is kind of getting kind of, kind of loose fingers here. It's on the prosecution. It's their burden to build a case against this guy. And right now, the case that, that Turd has brought is all hearsay. And just because there's a crowd saying, here, 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 yeah, 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 there's no eyewitness account. There's no tangible evidence that can point to Paul being able to do this, all Tert says, ask Paul, he'll tell you. Which I'm thinking, that seems weird. Why would you hand the mic over to Paul? Because guess what's going to happen? He's going to pretty much put you in your place. Unless Tert realizes that this is just a foregone occlusion, conclusion and that they have the power and the upper hand, I'm not sure. It's not in here. But let's see what Paul says in reply. Verse 10. Knowing that for many years, Paul talking to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully, which means with good courage, make my defense. There's no, there's no kissing up to Felix. It's just, you're a judge. Here comes my defense with all courage. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way, that's to Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. He is doubling down and his, look, his argument has never changed in these trials. No matter the audience, he has continued to assert the truth that in whom he is worshiping is the same God that the Jewish people all profess to be Yahweh. The God of our fathers. I'm worshiping the same one. And then he goes on to say, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Not only do I believe in God our fathers, but I believe in the writings that are of our tradition. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul's just laying it out in that there's no way that I could have upset the synagogue. There's no way that I could turn it upside down because I'm doing the very thing that they're doing, but one difference. I have realized these truths through who? Jesus. It's the missing piece that these Jewish leaders cannot seem to tie together. So Paul says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And he says this because the only thing that Paul's guilty of, that they're trying to, to rake him over the coals for, the only thing he's guilty of is proper worship. He went to the synagogue. He does an act of purification. 
He pays alms. He does all these things. That's the only thing that he's guilty of. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without a crowd or tumult. But Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Paul rightly calls out that there's no eyewitnesses. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than the one thing that I cried out while standing among them, and what he's referencing there is when Paul um, uh, badmouthed the high priest. So he's owning up to that, but obviously doesn't really care. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So now Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, meaning Felix understands a little bit more than others here about who Jesus is and what they're about, he puts off them saying, well, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gives orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody. So he remands him. He takes him back. He's in custody. He's in quote-unquote jail. But Felix allows for friends to come to attend to Paul, but he's holding him in captivity. Now, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as Paul reasoned, which means as he preached and taught about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was afraid. He was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul so that he could go free. So he sent for Paul often and conversed with him for how long? Two years. For two years, Felix holds Paul in captivity, bringing him forward to have audiences with him for the back hope here that Paul will pay him off in order for him to get out. Paul doesn't do that, does he? For two years, he has an audience with Felix, possibly his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and Jesus has Paul right where he wants him, right? Because now Paul gets to make a testament of a defense about his faith to Roman people and to Jewish people once again. There's a reason. There's things going on here. Even though Paul may not necessarily be privy to it, all Paul does is just continue on. And after two years had elapsed, Felix succeeded by another guy. And after desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So when I read this chapter, I'm thinking like, oh, I don't know, what's in here? What's, this is just, you know, unfortunate circumstances that Paul is now stuck here for two years and, 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 and having to be beckoned at, at whenever Felix wants him to come. And every time he's there, I, we assume that Paul is teaching about the truth of Jesus Christ, his faith in Christ, righteousness, and self-control. That that's what he's doing for two years. And then it dawned on me, it dawned on me, for two years, Paul has had access to Roman leadership. Paul has been able to continue to teach and to impress upon people the theological truths that he has unlocked about God of our fathers that is now found in Christ. This is an amazing act of laboring well and a lesson in patience and perseverance. How many of you, after two years of being stuck someplace, feeling that God has just got something else on the horizon for you. After two years, you would be thinking, I need to get out of here. How many people would be getting impatient with that, right? Two years of laboring well for the Lord and thinking, God, not getting any younger. I don't know where your timetable is. You know, great, thanks. But I need to be, get moving on, right? Doesn't say that. Paul, Luke doesn't record that about Paul. Just 
steadfast patience, perseverance, and teaching about the truth of the gospel that he knows. What is Paul armed with? He's armed with the fullness of God's word. Remember he said the prophets and the law. That's what he ascribes to. That's to the whole scriptures that they have at that moment. And then he's got one added bonus. He's got visitations from Jesus, whom we know makes up the third component of God's word. Law, prophets, and Christ, the word made flesh. He's got it all. Armed with that now, he teaches Felix faith in Christ, righteousness, and self-control, the very things that Paul is demonstrating for these two years. Paul is demonstrating his unnerving faith. He is demonstrating his understanding of his right standing with God. That's what righteousness means. And self-control, not to flip tables and be like, I'm out of here. Two years is enough. I'm a citizen of Rome. Take me to Rome. He labors there and labors well with patience and perseverance. Now, what does Paul know that the Jewish folks don't? It's that righteousness piece. And I have said this several weeks, and I'm going to say it again, because you have to understand, this is what I think gives Paul the wind in his sails. This is what I think allows Paul to be kind of uh, unwavering and to do this without hindrance is because he understands what it means to be made right with God. God is just. Say that. That is a core belief of our faith. If God was unjust, then all this stuff doesn't matter, right? It's unfair. But because God is just, sins and the breaking of the law must be paid for by death. Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of Eden, and there's now separation between him and humanity, and there needs to be something that repairs the way so that we are made now right with God, so that he can look at us and the scales are balanced again. Now, what Paul has come to realize is that through the law, the Ten Commandments, this is impossible. Why? Because alone, we can't do that, right? We're going to mess it up. In fact, we have a whole Old Testament of Jewish people messing it up time and time again and having to do cleansing rituals to make themselves clean. But then Jesus comes and Jesus satisfies the law to the, to the letter and does what it can't do. The law was given to God's people so that they would know what righteousness is and they fail to realize that they can't do it on their own. Jesus comes obeys the law, and then dies that guiltless death for us in true obedience to God. That because of that, now we get the, we get the present, we get the inheritance. Jesus was rewarded with eternal glory with the Father. We get to have that now too. Do you get that? Paul understands that. In the book of Romans, he writes to the church in Romans, which was written before this trial. It was written when Paul was in Corinth. Listen to what he says about this idea of righteousness. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that righteous the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
And those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Because to set your mind on the flesh, that's death. To do what sin tells us to do, that's eternal separation from God. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And that word peace means reconciliation with God. For the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I think about the 40 Jewish men who made a vow to end Paul's life, knowing that it was going to kick them out of the temple for life. They were okay with not having access to God in order to take Paul out. Those who are of the flesh, they don't submit to God's law. They can't, and they cannot please God. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, meaning we are going to die because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul's ongoing platform. I am I, worshiping the God of our fathers. I am following the law and the prophets. And I am proclaiming the resurrection of the just and unjust. And he has made the connection that that resurrection, that eternal life that we are all hoping for, is found in Christ. This is what I think, why I think. In front of these people, he cheerfully makes a defense. And he has great patience and perseverance to continue to do that no matter what's in front of him or what's coming his way. Is he scared? Is he afraid? Yeah, he's human. We see that just before he's getting flogged and everything else. What does he do? Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. Stop, right? Like, because I'm thinking he's thinking, if I can make a defense without my back being ripped apart, that would be great. You know, let's do that instead. So he's not some superhuman. Don't look at it and think, oh, Paul's not me. He's got some special grace going on. No, he's just a human just like us. But I think what moves him, moves him forward is he's connected to the dots. That our eternal life with Christ is on faith through him and faith alone. And that's what he teaches to Felix. And he does it for two years, even though, even though Felix is only looking for money. Which brings me to the second point about laboring well and becoming more like Christ. That sometimes our labor, our efforts, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yet we're just called to continue to serve. And that's what Paul is doing. I don't know if Paul realizes that Felix is looking for money or not. In fact, I, I struggle to, to think, why does Felix want money from Paul in the first place? How much money could Paul have in comparison to Felix, who was a Roman governor? Like, why? why? This, doesn't, this doesn't make sense. But he continues on. It's a hard lesson for us to understand that sometimes we just need to serve and work and, and, and trust in God even though we don't know what fruit is going to come from it. I remember when I was on a mission trip with Carrie to China. And you're not allowed to go to China as a missionary, so we have to go as, a, as under the, uh, the guise of, of helping college students learn English and do different things like that. And so while we were there for two weeks, we had college students that we were paired with. And we're talking and having a great time. Two or three days go by, and what we need to have happen is the college students ask us about Jesus, because then the door is open, and we can then begin to talk about it. But we have to wait for that to happen. 
So by day three, all the missionaries in the group are getting a little antsy, right? They're like, we, fly, we flew all the way over here. Dang it, someone's proclaiming Jesus, right? And so we're in a bus, and we're driving to some garden, I think. And we drive past a, uh, uh, I think it was a Catholic church of some sort. Uh, it was a church. And as we drive by, everyone, all the missionaries, all the white people, when they looked this way, and they looked at the church, and they were like, everyone, look how beautiful this church is over here. Look how wonderful this Christian church is. And kept trying to emphasize this church so that the students would say, oh, well, who's Jesus? And, you know, you know just to try to help us out here along the way. Sometimes when you witness to people, they don't hear. Felix is not listening. But does that mean that we stop sharing and making a defense for Christ with folks who don't hear? Jesus told his disciples, hey, you're going to go out, go to city to city. And after you've taught and given them the words of truth and hope, if they don't receive you, kick off your heels and leave. But notice the order of operations there. It's only after they've taught. It's only after they've shared that after a while, then it's time to move on. So why do it? Why teach to someone who won't listen? It seems like an exercise in futility. It's the second part of the statement, laboring well to become more like Christ, because maybe, just maybe, this witnessing that we're doing is not necessarily for the people who won't hear, but more for us so that we would be formed. Every time that Paul gets summoned to Felix to teach about faith in Christ, righteousness, and self-control, it's just rooting him more and more into this theology that he has now discovered. It's becoming more and more his life's mission and belief. It's said that you retain 90% of what you teach to some, somebody else. 90% of what you teach. To, that's why teachers are so experts. <laughs> 90% of what you teach to somebody else you retain. Don't roll your eyes. I know there's some good teachers in there. It's to form us. Paul's witnessing to Felix obviously is not to change Felix's heart, though it could happen down the road. We don't know. We don't hear from Felix again. Paul's witnessing to Felix is so that his heart is formed and strengthened and prepared for what comes next because we know what comes next is Rome and then after that is death. By, by being martyred. I think Jesus is preparing him. I think he's getting him ready for what's to come, to strengthen him, so that when he comes before more and more people to make a defense, he is lock, stock, knows what he is going to say, knows what is the truth, and doesn't waver. Laboring well, to become more like Christ. Sometimes we don't get to know what the outcome is going to be, but Christ pulls us through these circumstances so that we become more like him. Paul writes to Philippians. This is what I'm going to end with. And Philippians was written during this time of imprisonment, somewhere around here. Listen to the words that he says to the church in Philippi. I will rejoice, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because he knows what awaits him. He knows the truth that awaits. Sometimes I think that gets into our stuff. Sometimes I think that's what pauses us in our boldness and our courage is that maybe, just maybe, we don't fully trust that when we die, we're going to be there. That's a real kick in the pants. But I think why Paul can write this is that he has seen it, he believes it, and he is firmly planted right there that whether he lives or dies, it's all for Jesus. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, which means to stay here on earth, that means fruitful labor for me. Do you see that? Yeah, that goes on. He wants to, he's, he'd be happy to go and be with Christ, free from all the things that plague us here. But while I'm here, if I'm going to be on this side of heaven, all that means is just fruitful labor for me, to share Christ with others, to make him known, so that more and more people would join me there when that time comes. These lessons that we get from Paul, they're great lessons. This is a master level course on what it means to make a defense for Jesus Christ. And today we learn that sometimes it's just about laboring well, handling the junk trailers of life, and doing so, learning and being formed more and more in the image of Jesus Christ so that others would know who he is. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I I thank you for... I thank you for the hard things in life, although it struggles me to say it. But I know that the hard things in life, I know that the things that are put before us, these are ways in which you work, in which you labor well, to make us more and more into your image, to make us think like you and act like you and react like you, so that others begin to see us less and you more. Allow us to labor well to become more like you so that the world here on this side of heaven would know the truth and the hope found in Jesus Christ to be made right and to be united with him in heaven when that day comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a question that we have to answer every day in our lives. Is Jesus worthy of all of us? Is he worthy to follow with our whole lives? Is he worthy to trust in him when we go through the junk trailers of life? Is he worthy enough to be shared with others? I hope that you understand that he 100% is worthy. He has called you into this family to know the truth and the riches of his grace and to share that with others. So go out there like C.S. Lewis says, his little Christ, labor well and make him known. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, All God's people said, amen. Have a great day, everybody.